Welcome to episode one, the very first episode of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. Here's a short clip from today's main interview. I think on a human level, uh, it's more about where you were to begin with and how the pandemic has affected you individually. Uh, and p- people will have reacted differently. Or, you know, if you're living with someone who's particularly anxious, then that kind of um, translates across to you as well. If you've got to reassure your partner that it's okay to go to the supermarket or you end up doing all of the, the going out the house stuff, that it just changes everything, really. That short clip featured Dr. Lawrence Baldwin, who I interview in the main part of the show. He's Assistant Professor of Mental Health Nursing at Coventry University, and he very kindly came on the show to talk to me about the effects of the pandemic on the mental health of the nation, uh, the effects it's had on people who have been working in frontline services, uh, particular focus on the effect it's had or potentially has had on our young people, our children and young people. And also we talked a little bit about what we can expect in the weeks and months ahead as the restrictions are eased, even in the face of the arrival of the Delta variant that's very much in the headlines at the moment. So I hope that you'll enjoy uh, the main part of the show, uh, which will be coming along shortly. Now, uh, I'm going to be opening each show with a short section Uh, dealing with stuff that I've noticed out there in the world in the preceding couple of weeks between each show. Uh, That might be stuff that I've seen on the television, things I've heard on other podcasts, things I've read in magazines or books, and uh, stuff that might have come up in conversation with people that I've met. All things that uh, are focused on the subject matter that we're covering in this show that I think might be of interest to you. Some of it might be newsy, some of it might have been around for a while, but by goodness, it's news to me, and it might therefore still be news to you. So I hope that you enjoyed this little introductory part of the show. Uh, Before I go any further, I also want to add that there's another bit of the show right at the other end after the main interview uh, called Relaxation on the Beach, which is me giving a short 10 or 15 minutes guided meditation aimed at people who might not have done any meditation before or people who might have done some meditation in the past but haven't been doing it for a while or people who still do do some meditation perhaps using one of the many apps that's available nowadays such as the car map but you don't mind having a go with someone else doing the guiding for you so that's at the end of the show so don't forget to carry on listening beyond the main interview if you want to listen to that i'll also be making those available separately as little short 10 or 15 minute meditations that you can listen to on their own if you like uh, after you know or in between the the podcast coming out which i imagine will be on a fortnightly basis for the time being obviously if things go bonkers and this uh, goes large and gets popular who knows if i can afford it um we might even be able to make it a weekly thing if we can get enough guests to come on the show anyway so let me kick off with 
something that's actually a book recommendation. Some of you may already have seen or even read this book before. Uh, the, the author is quite prominent on uh, social media and he runs a very, very popular newsletter with many hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people signed up to it. And the author's name is James Clear. And in 2018, uh, he had a book published called Atomic Habits, uh, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. Uh, that was published by Random House in 2018. And that's when I first bought it sometime around the end of 2018 and gave it a read through and thought, gosh, that's jolly interesting. Uh, all about how to create good habits and how to break bad habits. At the time, I thought, yeah, that's interesting. That'll come in useful at some point in the future. Little did I know what was around the corner for me. When, uh, towards the end of 2019, something like September 2019, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, a diagnosis that came completely out of the blue. And then I was faced with you know coping with the prostate cancer itself and the treatment uh, the treatment came in a number of forms there were some tablets i was put on straight away which then became three monthly injections of some pretty gruesome stuff and also then uh beginning actually started kind of june 2020 it was supposed to have started in february 2020 but the covid pandemic put the kibosh on the nhs being able to deliver all sorts of treatment for serious illnesses because of uh you know the, the workload uh, i so started radiotherapy uh, 37 sessions of radiotherapy uh, kicked off in june and went on through till august early august of uh, last year and the combined effects of medication and the radiotherapy left me extremely debilitated, totally lacking in energy. I was also really rather obese at that point, overweight. Uh, and in fact, the, one of the weird things was because of the nature of the treatment, I was told I mustn't lose any weight until the treatment was finished because of the precision of the laser guided machinery, the zapping machinery. Uh, I had to try and keep my body weight absolutely level if I possibly could. So I was a strange thing, strange experience being ordered not to lose weight for the space of you know a couple of months uh, for 37 sessions Monday to Friday every week. And by the end of it, I was in a bit of a state. There's no way of uh, getting around that. I so I was very overweight and suffering from this terrible terrible lethargy uh, lack of energy and um, so I spoke to my oncologist and said is there anything to be done about that and he said well to be honest the only thing he's heard anecdotally is that from some patients not all uh, doing a bit of exercise can help restore energy levels well me being me I kind of threw myself at it and at that time, you know, I was thinking, gosh, you know, well, what should I do? What, what are my goals here? What are my goals? What am I aiming to achieve? And I couldn't come up with anything more specific than, well, I want to lose weight and get some more energy back. And it's at that point I remembered this remarkable book by James Clear, Atomic Habits. And uh, what he points out is that actually uh, goals aren't necessarily what you want is actually focusing on 
the process, focusing on the system, uh, is what's going to help you to achieve stuff. Uh, I mean, I can quote directly from the book here. It says, yeah, prevailing wisdom claims that the best way to achieve what we want in life is to set specific actionable goals. And certainly those of you who may work in business of one form or another have uh, heard of, you know, actionable goals, measurable, actionable, actionable goals. Uh, but what James says is your goals are about the results you want to achieve. Systems are about the processes that lead to those results. Uh, if you want better results, then forget about setting goals. Focus on your system instead. Goals are good for setting a direction, but systems are best for making progress. And my experience is I couldn't agree more. And so what I did was I started out with a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet. How boring is that? Starting an exercise regime with a spreadsheet. Uh, my partner, Anne, and I also, to help shift the weight, uh, took up Dr. Michael Mosley's Fast 800 diet, which is a way of rapidly losing weight but safely. And it seemed to me that if I wanted to shift the weight and regain energy, uh, shedding the pounds as quickly as I could would also be a good idea. So I literally started out with a spreadsheet. And on day one, I seem to remember that the goal was to be able to do about a minute's worth of exercise, as little as that. It was literally, OK, roll out of bed. And before you do anything else, try doing five press-ups, five sit-ups, uh, 30 seconds jogging on the spot. OK, total around one minute. And I can tell you the first few days that was enough. Uh, that level of exertion was enough and I'd be out of breath and OK, that'll do. But like every day or every other day, I would add, say, another press up, another sit up, an extra 10 seconds of jogging on the spot. And then once I got up to around two or three minutes, I started thinking, well, all right, OK, I can add in another exercise here to add a bit of variety. So maybe do a couple of star jumps, maybe do a few bodyweight squats, that kind of thing. And over time, day by day, week by week, I made progress. And I was actually quite surprised at how rapid my progress was. To the point where in April, by the end of April this year, 2021, after just, you know, so if I started around about September, October last year, so in the space of about six months, I had managed to shed around 27, 28 kilos in body weight. That's like 58, 60 pounds, something like that. Someone do the maths. And uh, I had dropped uh, two sizes in trousers and shirt size. So I'd gone from triple XL to XL in shirt and jacket size. And I had gone from a 38 inch waist down to a 34 inch waist in trousers. Kind of Almost one of those classic pictures of the guy who's got the pair of trousers where you could fit two of them <laughs> into it, right? Uh, not quite that dramatic, but very dramatic, you know, as far as I was concerned. And 
I had regained control of my body to a very high degree. You know, I'd, I'd muscles were appearing, uh, body weight had vanished. Um, it was an extraordinary transformation and the transformation continues because kind of end of April, beginning of May, I have to admit, I started to get a bit bored exercising on my own at home, by which time I was doing something like 45, 50, sometimes uh, even 60 minutes in a session of all kinds of, uh, you know, body weight exercises, HIIT training, uh, using weights up here in my attic studio, um, and I'd reached the certainly reached the limit with what I could do with weights up here in a safe manner. So I took on the services of a personal trainer and I now go and visit a personal trainer twice a week and we do a proper regime with much heavier weights in a much safer environment. And she's absolutely brilliant uh, and has reinvigorated my love of exercise. You know, I, I was very, very fit as a youngster and my brain for many years had been trying to get me to do things that I was able to do when I was like 18, 19, 20 years old, but the body was refusing. Well, few of those things have become possible again and i'm over the moon about that it's been fantastic for my mental health as well as my physical health and i can't recommend exercise enough as a way of digging yourself out of a psychological hole but the main thing the main point i want to make is that this book atomic habits by james clear was pivotal in my ability to do that um and uh, if you are someone who's looking to either create good habits or get rid of bad habits like smoking, overeating, whatever it might be, staying up too late, I can't recommend it highly enough. You know, I, I don't want to sound too evangelistic about it, but it is a brilliant book. Um, and just to give you a little insight, um, the way he, he's created four laws about how to create good habits and then inverted them to help you to get rid of bad habits. And the way he talks about, the way he explains that habits are formed, the way that they are built, is that we respond to a cue and then craving and then have a response and kind of demand or need a reward at the end of it so the way he uh, applies this is he says uh, to create a good habit is make it obvious make the new good habit obvious make it attractive make it easy hence the for example only starting with a couple of minutes a day rather than saying oh i'm going to run a mile today on day one no, don't do that. Uh, and make it satisfying. And uh, breaking a bad habit, you kind of turn things on, on their head. And so you, what you want to do is make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult to do and make it unsatisfying. And that may sound all terribly simplistic, but trust me, the book explains everything in great detail and goes through every stage in great detail about how to achieve either uh, creating good habits or getting rid of bad ones. And uh, as I say, uh, the main thing is to think small, think about small incremental changes rather than focusing on big goals like New Year's Eve resolutions that you're likely to have given up in the space of a week. You know, it's no good saying, oh, I'm going to do the London Marathon and they're putting on your training shoes and trying to bang out 
26 miles around the streets uh, on day one. You're going to half kill yourself. It's dangerous and you'll give up. Uh, far better to say on day one, do you know what? I'm just going to jog to the end of the street and then day two. OK, I'm going to add literally just like 10 paces to that. And before you know it, you're running a mile or you're running five miles. You know, it, it add to things incrementally and over time, the transformation will be remarkable. It's only time. And I look back at, you know, photo before photos, of how I looked six months ago. I can't believe it. I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing to me and utterly amazing to me that, you know, good friends of mine say, you know, oh, hi, skinny. How are you doing? I'm not quite that skinny yet, I have to point out. I've still got a way to go. But uh, compared to where I was, I'm, a, I'm visually a different person. So Atomic Habits by James Clear, thoroughly recommended. Now, I'm going to turn briefly to talk a, about the latest issue of New Scientist magazine. Uh, this one uh, I've got here came out on the 10th of July. And the thing I want to draw your attention to is there's a section in there all about consciousness the 10 biggest questions about the greatest mystery in the universe is like gosh what is consciousness uh how many states of consciousness do we have can physics explain consciousness what is consciousness like in other animals when did consciousness evolve what are the models of consciousness how would we know if a machine were conscious what's consciousness for is consciousness detectable in the brain? Uh, is the universe conscious? This is moving out to really mind-bending territory, but it's fascinating stuff. And does consciousness make reality? Now, I'm not going to go into any detail about this, other than to say it's one of those things you read once in a while that just makes you go, whoa, this is amazing. This is fantastic stuff. This is the kind of stuff I really love, you know, the kind of stuff that you'll see occasionally like a Horizon documentary where they look into subjects just like this. What is consciousness? How how do we know we're aware? What is awareness? Uh, do other creatures have awareness? How do we know if they have awareness? What kind of awareness is it? I mean, one of the things they talk about in the article is that they think that uh, octopuses, for example, each of their legs may have independent awareness. I mean, how alien is that, right? And uh, physicists are getting involved. Quantum physics, you know, is, is consciousness to do with quantum physics inside the neurons of the brain? This is extraordinary stuff. Very, very exciting. And I have to tell you, I hope at some point to be able to get someone on the show who's involved in this kind of research. Uh, funnily enough, there's uh, at least one person at the University of Sussex just down the road from where I live, in fact, whose name is mentioned. I'm going to be emailing them to say, please come on the show to talk about this stuff, because I think it's something that you will all find fascinating and is mind-bending in that wonderful way that the science of the brain and our psychological life uh, can be. So, uh, a thorough recommendation for the latest issue of New Scientist magazine, which is available in paper, digitally, and all that kind of thing, like everything else is these days.
The final thing I'm just going to mention is uh, I put a link on the website for the podcast to some videos I made about my journey through uh, the, the the process of being diagnosed with and then treated for prostate cancer uh, that I some videos I made that are on YouTube they've been up there uh, ever since you know September 2019 and I've added to them uh, and I'm going to put a link to those because a good friend reminded me that uh, some people found them extremely useful uh, they're pretty hard-hitting I don't pull any punches I tell it like it is what it's like to be a man going through this process some Sometimes I get quite emotional, uh, not just because of the drugs that I'm on that you'll see explained uh, at the time, but also because it's it's an emotional thing being a man who's got prostate cancer and the effect that that can have on a number of aspects of your life. So I'm going to put a link to those videos because uh, they're dealing at least as much with the psychology of being a prostate cancer patient as with the physical effects of which there were uh, numerous effects, many of which were pretty unpleasant. Uh, so be warned, they don't pull any punches. But I know for a fact, because a few guys have got in touch with me and said, effectively, they saved their life uh, because they saw the video, went and got themselves checked, got a simple blood test at the doctor, discovered that, in fact, all was not well. And then fortunately, they were in the system. Treatment was able to begin. And I'm delighted to say they're still with us here today. So that link is going to be on the blog. Uh, if you're interested, if you are a white guy aged 55 plus or thereabouts, or a black guy aged 45 plus or thereabouts, because for whatever strange genetic reason, it seems to affect, affect black men sooner than white guys, uh, watch the videos. Get yourself checked. A simple check, uh, a simple blood test called a PSA blood test could save your life. And if you are a family member or a friend of someone of that age, uh, a male of that age, uh, by all means, you go ahead and watch as well because you might learn enough to persuade someone to go and get themselves checked. All right. So we're going to take a brief pause now and then we'll return with the main part of the show where I'm interviewing Dr. Lawrence Baldwin, who's Assistant Professor of Mental Health Nursing at Coventry University. See you in a minute. Welcome to this part of Inside Your Head, where I get to interview people who know stuff about the subject matter that the podcast is dealing with. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have on the show someone I've known for many years, actually, through a different sphere of life completely. But I found out what he does for a living. And gosh, I thought, now there's a man who I'd like to have on the show. And the person I've got sitting with me in a virtual sense today is Assistant Professor Lawrence Baldwin. Hello there, Lawrence. 
Morning, Henry. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, an honour to be the first guest on your new podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Honorous responsibility, of course, being on episode one, representing your profession, but I'm sure that you do absolutely fine. Uh, and uh, I think it's really uh, going to be fascinating for the listeners to hear your journey into the mental health profession, because um, there you are now, an assistant professor at the University of Coventry. But in fact, you started out your career as a mental health nurse. So please tell the listeners a bit about your journey. So a long, long time ago, before I came into nursing, I actually studied theology. Um, but I worked out I was never going to make a good vicar. Uh, so <laughs> I looked around for something else that might be about people. And yeah. theology is arguably about people as well. But mm. mental health nursing is definitely about people and particularly about sort of interactions and therapeutic relationships and stuff like that. So mm. that's where I ended up training in an asylum in Nottinghamshire many years ago. Wow. And at that time, it was an asylum. Yeah. Uh, things have moved on a lot since then. Um, I spent a lot of time early on in my training, I worked out that I wanted to work with children and young people, really. Mm. Um, so after an initial stint on the normal adult wards, I ended up uh, spending a lot of time as a initially a clinical nurse specialist in children and young people's mental health. Um, and then later on, I was a nurse consultant um, doing some, you know, a lot of hands-on stuff, but also doing training uh, research and some, some national stuff that I did with the Royal College of Nursing as well. Right. And then about five years ago, I moved across to uh, Coventry University. Um, I picked up a PhD along the way. So I'm a nurse mm. and a doctor. So two reasons to trust me, PhD doctor, <laughs> not a medical doctor. Um, and now I teach mental health nursing. Uh, we're just starting an MSc as well as the undergraduate uh, course. Wow. And I've taught research methods and stuff like that, postgraduate level. So one thing has led to another, really. I'm, I'm still a nurse. i just yeah. an assistant professor of mental health nursing. Right. Uh, you sent through your very, very impressive CV, Lawrence. It's one of the most comprehensive CVs I've seen in a long time. It's just very long because I've been around a long time. You've been around a long time, sure. But uh, I think it reveals rather more than that, that obviously you're, you're passionate about your subject matter. You've written quite a lot of papers about uh, mental health nursing, particularly about the uh, the mental health of children, the care of children and young people. Uh, what is it in particular that's drawn you to that aspect of the profession, Lawrence? I think with children and young people, you see the potential for things to get fixed in a way mm. that maybe is harder to do with older people. Mm. Uh, the, the key with children and young people is to to just be aware that they're not fully formed yet. They, yeah. Adolescents and teenagers particularly hate it when you point that out to them. But <laughs> in many ways, their, their personality is still growing. And a lot of child mental health and young people's mental health stuff is about helping them to learn better ways of coping with situations. Yeah. So, for example, a lot of the self-harm stuff that we see uh, is about mm. coping with the first period of sustained stress or difficulty and mm. and self-harm is a is a bad way of coping um, but mm. for often often for the young people it's the only way they've got um, so you've got the potential there to 
helps them find better ways of coping. And those ways of coping, hopefully, will follow them through the rest of their lives. Um, yeah, so absolutely. I think that it, it always feels like there's, there's no really good research evidence to suggest that if you get in early, it will fix things long term. But intuitively, mm. it feels like that ought to be happening. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and in uh, this series of podcasts, as it grows, um, I'm sure that we'll be covering a lot of the coping mechanisms that you've mentioned there, both for adults and children. It's one of the kind of primary reasons for me starting this show, uh, because of my own journey over the last couple of years and the things that I've learned along the way uh, that have literally saved my life. And as as you mentioned there, one of the most distressing things uh, in connection with young people is that uh, self-harm is often one of the things that they feel they that is one of their only options at a very young age uh, because they're not old enough to have learnt the resilience that as adults, hopefully, we've built up over time. Um, and obviously, this is you know very serious subject matter, not to be dealt with lightly. Uh, but of course, we're seeing a lot of, you know, because of social media these days as well, and things like gender politics, it's uh, kind of uh, risen to the forefront of many news broadcasts i think that's fair to say isn't it yeah absolutely and I, I think the problem at the moment is that there is the epidemic that we've talked about is mostly about the physical um, mm. stuff but certainly my colleagues who are still in practice are telling me that you know their epidemic is starting now um, yeah absolutely and we're going to kind of move on and talk about that in in some depth i think mm -hmm. uh so so yes let's let's in fact plunge in here um as uh is clear you know the pandemic the covid-19 pandemic threatened so many different aspects of our lives um and has undermined uh many of the key aspects of our psychological well-being that you know the entire population uh, and by that and, I, and i'm referring to some notes provided by a really good friend of mine actually who is a social worker and uh, has first-hand experience of dealing with the effects of many of these things um basically uh, what we tend to crave as human beings isn't it we need we need to feel safe we need to feel that we've got social, emotional, and physical comfort. Uh, we feel the need to be close to others and the need for things to make sense, be predictable, and be familiar. And obviously, the last couple of years has really thrown all that up in the air for all of us, hasn't it? So in your view, you know, speaking as someone who's, you know, a senior uh, professional in the mental health industry now, how do you feel that... Uh, I mean, obviously, we can only speak for the UK, really. We, can, You know, other different countries have coped in different ways. They have different cultures. But certainly in the UK, how do you feel that we've coped as a nation with uh, mental this degree of mental health upset in the last couple of years, Lawrence? I, I think the difficulty, and you'll see this played out on the media, is the, the difference between the health imperatives and the political imperatives. Yeah. So the, the, the science suggests that closing down is the most important thing to prevent the physical transmission of COVID-19, for example. Mm -hmm. um, 
the politics is always going to say, well, that's dangerous for the economy and bad for people's health and all the rest of it. So we've, we've coped with that to a degree. I think in terms of children's stuff, the imperative to keep the schools open um, has mm -hmm. been a tricky balance that they've had to uh, try and achieve, really. Um, because mm. the difference with children is that it's harder for them to understand that you know, this is a temporary thing. It's an important mm. stage wherever they are at in their in their development. A year, a year, two and a half, a year and a half, two years is a long chunk out of any young person's developmental mm. um, journey. So being isolated, particularly difficult for, for teenagers and stuff, it's, you know, they've got all their social media and other ways of doing things, but it's not the mm. same as interacting face to face with people. Mm. Um, so that sort of normal developmental stage is really difficult for the really young ones. It's not being, in, mm. it, being able to interact at all. The, the sort of preschoolers, you know, nurseries mm. haven't been open or been operating on a very limited basis. Um, so all those normal social elements are, are the reason that has driven keeping the schools open. Mm. In terms of broader mental health, obviously, there, there will actually be a very small number of people who've quite enjoyed not having to socially interact with other people. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's been okay for them, uh, but that's quite a small number of us. Um, mm. And the rest of us will have struggled with you know, all manner of things, not being able to do the normal stuff. Um, and that, mm. you know, we ha all of us have a routine. What you do at Christmas was disrupted last year. You know, level of health anxiety, for example, will have gone through the roof um, mm. in terms of just, you know, depending on how you are individually, if you were already a bit anxious about other people and, and stuff, then you're probably a lot more anxious about them now. Yeah. Um, and you you'll be on the side of the argument that says we should carry on wearing masks for a long time yet mm. and look over your nose at people who get too close to you in the supermarket as they do. <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah, I think all those normal anxieties have, have all been heightened um, yeah. for, for lots of us. You know, I found myself in the early days particularly getting quite anxious, which I'm not normally a, a particularly anxious person, but yeah. just the uncertainty of where it was going particularly yeah. the early days it wasn't clear how things were going to run or how things were going to work out yeah. and i guess now it's a little more predictable but still yeah. we get mixed messages from politicians about what's the best way to say stay safe or you know what things should open or where you should wear masks and stuff like that so that that kind of uncertainty yeah. is very very current at least in the uk yeah. at the moment yeah. elsewhere has been a little more de uh, decisive i think but yeah. you know internationally the american experience has been very different from ours you know what's yeah. happened in australia and new zealand they handled it very differently for example yeah um so yeah you can get political about how the government has handled it um, i think on a human level uh, it's more about where you were to begin with and yeah. how the pandemic has affected you individually um, yeah. And p people will have reacted differently or, you know, if yeah. you're living with someone who's particularly anxious, then that kind of um, translates yeah. across to you as well. You, you, if you've got to yes, it does. reassure your partner that it's okay to go to the supermarket or you end up doing all of the, the going out yeah. the house stuff, that it just changes everything really.
Yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, struck me, I've got a friend who's got elderly parents uh, who are you know, quite frail. And um, I think it's fair to say that uh, many people in a similar situation, um, because of the news that was coming out of care homes early in the pandemic where the mortality rates were shocking. I think there's no other way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, that, I think, for a lot of people created a great deal of anxiety about uh, the, the chance factor, you know, the, the, the what are the probabilities or possibilities of just randomly walking down the street, picking up the COVID and then going to see someone you love who may be elderly and frail. And then before you know it, you've ac accidentally transmitted the virus to an elderly parent or relative who might die. You know, and that the the NHS was clearly under a huge amount of strain. I mean, my experience was I I you know, and I've talked openly about this, and I'm going to be introducing the listeners to a series of videos I made about my experience because uh, in September 2019, just before the kind of outbreak was announced, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and my cancer treatment was delayed um for several months you know it was supposed to have started in february 2020 didn't end up starting till kind of late june 2020 i'm not someone who's normally prone to anxiety <laughs> but i have to say that for the first time in my life i you know it was bad enough having a cancer diagnosis then being told yeah well we're not going to be able to treat you when we would like to treat you because the hospitals were totally overwhelmed with with the covid stuff yeah. And I know I'm not alone. There were tens of thousands of cancer patients and people with other serious illnesses in identical situations. And I think that um, what we have to recognise, don't we, Lawrence, is that for many people, even though we might not have recognised it at the time, what, what we were suffering from was a kind of trauma. And that therefore, you know, I, I, in a totally different sphere, I've been very interested in post-traumatic stress disorder and that kind of stuff, that it's entirely possible that uh, a large swathe of the population is going to be suffering in one form or another to some extent or another. That kind of experience where the, it's this realisation that you've been through a traumatic experience and it needs to be processed to use the language of psychology how i mean how well prepared do you think the mental health profession is in this country for dealing with the aftermath of what we've all been through lawrence it's a difficult one because i think you know if you talk about trauma in general a shared traumatic experience is generally easier to get through than an individual traumatic experience. So there's mm. there's elements. It's why veterans stick together, for example, because they've yeah. they have, they've got a shared experience. Um, yeah. In many ways, we have all been through a very similar thing, but our experience of this trauma is going to be very different, very individualized. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what level of trauma? You, you used the word resilience before. Um, mm. And people will react very differently. Resilience is all about, you know, why do some people who go through the same experience do better than other, than others? You know, what is yeah. it about their character or their personality or their support network that makes it easier for them to cope with a bad experience compared to the mm. person who is next to them? So I think it is going to be 
interesting to see how people cope generally. I think mm. the way that mental health services are set up in the UK is that the NHS mental health services are, are set up to deal with a level of mental health distress that's quite high. Yeah. Um, and then there are sort of lower levels of um, different sorts of provision, uh, including mm. the sort of third sector charity um, areas that deal with different sorts of things. So sort of going through from acute mental illness um, down through what we call IAP. So increased access to psychological therapies um, and then into counseling services and you know, support services. Um, so mm. the, there are various different levels of support available. Uh, like mm. I said earlier, I think from mental health perspective, my colleagues who are still practicing are saying, you know, a lot of this has been suppressed. People haven't been out. As we yeah. start to open up, then people will have all manner of experiences that they need to process. Um, mm. And some will be more severe than others. You know, some people have been very, very isolated, um, yeah. the elderly particularly, um, but other yeah. people have been more anxious and, and less willing to go out. Um, some people will have been traumatized by the fact that they had to go out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, frontline services, for example, nursing colleagues who worked throughout this pandemic are all mm. exhausted um, and possibly quite traumatized Certainly, yeah. there's a lot of stuff coming through about the people who've had to work in intensive care units throughout, Gosh, yeah. and the people yeah. transferred into those ICUs because it, yeah. you know, capacity was expanded. Yeah. Who ne weren't necessarily you know, ready for that? That where there's a level of trauma for those staff, um, how they'll cope. And from a yeah. nursing perspective, lots of nurses are saying, "When this is over, because we're the kind of people that stick around and do things when we have to. When this is over." Mm there might be a bit of a, you know, I'll, I'll go and find something that's less traumatic for me to be doing. So mm. I think it's going to be interesting. I think particular groups, and when I say frontline staff, you know, paramedics, police services, those kind of sure. people who've had to work throughout as well. And to some sure. extent, you know, the other key worker groups as well um, who've, yeah. who've coped in different ways. But the good thing, I think, if there is a good thing, is that it is a shared experience. So we've all right. been through this together, albeit yeah. in sort of variations of yeah. you know, difficulty. We've all had different experiences. You, yeah. you had your experience of cancer and you talked openly about that, and that's great. You know, other people have their own stories. You know, my, my brother, for example, passed away last year with a respiratory disease yeah. and wasn't diagnosed with COVID, but mm, pretty sure it yeah. was. Um, so, yeah, we've all had different traumas. Um, yeah. And that's individual to each of us, even though the sort of shared experience is broadly similar. Yeah. I know that both you and I are interested in history. So, of course, what's immediately kind of bells ringing in my head, it's there's a kind of similarity to what a previous generation would have called the blitz mentality, uh, where, you know, there's an entire generation that's gone through that particular bit of World War Two and uh there's been veterans returning home from the front line who've then felt like, well, I can't really talk about my experiences because the people on the home front have had an equally bad experience in their own way. Um, it's it's complex stuff, isn't it? I think that's fair to say. Yeah, and it's interesting, I mean, particularly with the veterans, you, you hear so many stories of First World War and Second World War veterans who just didn't want to talk about it because yeah. they'd had such an extreme trauma. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, well, our trauma through the pandemic has been difficult, but no one's been dropping bombs on us. So it's been yeah. different. Um, you know, the, the trauma that, like I said, the shared trauma is, is easier to deal with. Um, but, yeah. you know, people deal with it in different ways because of their own particular setups and their own yeah. individual experiences. One of the things that I noticed was as soon as the vaccine became available, and of course, we have to, you know, send praise to the scientists who so astonishingly rapidly, in fact, came upon an effective vaccine, an Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and I think then um, it it was quite an interesting process, the way that the mood of the nation changed and it then became this kind of race, how quickly can we get the vaccine out, you know? And But also then this strange uh, polarisation that, that happened in the country uh, uh, between the the people who had the vaccine and the people who uh, were anti-vaxxers, that kind of thing. There were all these kind of conspiracy theories and things that started floating around um, was quite extraordinary. And at times, another kind of disturbing element, wasn't it, that kind of was introduced to this, what was already a complicated soup. Um, and that must have been, you know, for the thinking of the medical profession, that must have been so exasperating. <laughs> uh, I, I, and you, obviously, you're a man who was kind of close to, you know, the, the medical profession, and you must have kind of had some kind of insight to um, the frustrations around that, Lawrence? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is frustrating. The, the, the Oxford scientists who worked on on the vaccine obviously were building on stuff that they'd already prefer, uh, prepared so you know covid isn't that different from mers and sars so they were able to build yeah. it that's what that's why the speed of development and give them yeah. credit they've been very altruistic about not making a huge profit out of this you know keeping yeah. the, the price down i think the the adaption to how people have reacted to the vaccine is interesting it is very very frustrating um for those of us who you know, come from a evidence-based practice background where yeah. we follow the science, this obviously works and therefore you should take it. And that's yeah. that's true of other treatments as well. You know, why do people not take their diabetes medication, for example, when they know sure. they ought to? Why do people like myself, yeah, yeah. who probably ought to lose a bit of weight, not lose weight yeah. when it would do us good? I think the the general, again, the general politics is following a bit of sort of this sort of anti-establishment uh, conspiracy mm. theory thing. And the, there was an, always an element of that around the sort of anti-vaxxers, but they were largely in America, um, yeah. relatively few in the UK. It seems to have tapped into this sort of mistrust of authority yeah. um, that, yeah. that is more a, a broad societal problem. Certainly yeah. around, you know, I live in Nottingham and we have uh, quite close to me, there's a, a so-called Christian bookshop uh, which has been right. opening regularly through the pandemic and has been fine right. enormously. It's very divisive in the community. Um, yeah. So people have sort of adopted that in a, you know, it's almost like they've gone beyond the vaccine thing into a into the more anti-authority thing. It sort of yeah. fits their narrative, to yeah. use the jargon. Yeah, a kind of anarchic narrative. Um, I mean, let's come back to uh, the subject that's closest to your heart. You know, children and young people, uh, and 
the effect that this has had on them in the last couple of years? Because obviously, as we said, you know, it's been hard enough for adults uh but the kids their education has been so disrupted there's there was already stuff you know every year it seemed about exam results mm. and then the whole thing about well yeah kids they've not had the lesson so we just kind of guesstimate what kind of grades they're going to get and this is their future we're talking about here obviously do you feel that as adults we've set a good example to our young people about how to cope with a, a major crisis? Do we think that we've met their needs in the last couple of years um, in general? Do you, is there anything that you've noticed that you've either been particularly kind of horrified by or impressed by in terms of the response that uh, we've been able to provide for our young people in the last couple of years? I'll start with the impressed bit then. I, I think we have to give credit to all the teaching staff in schools who've sort of yeah. carried on throughout and they've been put on the front line very much potentially at the expense of their own um, health. And there is, you know, all the stats say actually teachers are not getting sick at a greater rate than anyone else, but it doesn't yeah. stop you getting anxious when you particularly at the, at the moment there's lots of stuff about you know school closures and bubbles and stuff and lots of people going off i think it's been very hard for for all the staff in schools to to manage that manage their own anxieties manage mm. doing you know we've had to do this at university level as well but putting everything online is not as simple as it sounds yeah um, doing things differently delivering teaching in a very different way um mm. You do have to adapt what you're telling. You can't just sort of take your lesson notes and and talk mm. into a into a Zoom camera or a Teams meeting or whatever. It doesn't work like that. Um, mm. So, you know, I think for the staff dealing with that, that's been really difficult. Mm. I think for the young people, I think it, it's more about the social stuff. Initially, it sounds great, doesn't it? You don't have to go to school for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that that novelty soon wears off. You know, kids yeah. naturally have more energy and um, they want to be up and doing stuff. So being cooped yeah. up in a house is hard enough for an adult. It's harder for, for young people by and large. Yeah. And so, you know, again, they have some advantages. Being digital natives, they can get on the social media a lot more. But it's it's mm. simply not the same as seeing people face to face, kicking a ball yeah. around um, outside, that kind of stuff. So mm. I think they have suffered up. I think what's happened with a lot of stuff uh, during this pandemic is that a process that was already happening gets naturally accelerated. So yeah. Prior to the pandemic, simple example, I'd made maybe four or five Skype calls in my life. Yeah. Now I'm often doing that many in a day. Um, so that, yep. you know, what would have happened anyway is, has been accelerated. For young people, it's mm. the same thing, really. Um, mm. The things have just happened much faster. Um, things have had to go online and that, you know, people haven't coped with that as well as they would. It's, mm. it's just been really tough for them. And for mm. those that had, you know, worries or concerns already, those have become exaggerated. Yeah, um, Things are built up. They don't have access to their normal support networks certainly mm. things like child protection um yeah. you know kids have been stuck in houses with potentially parents or other adults who are not good for them 
Um, so yeah. the level of reporting on child abuse has gone down because the opportunities to report it have gone. Domestic abuse will be the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. People get stuck. Little things become big things very quickly. So levels yeah. of domestic abuse have gone through the roof as well. And you know, to give yeah. give people credit, people have tried to do stuff about that. You know, the train companies are offering free travel for people needing to get to refuges, those kind of things. So yeah. it's brought out the best of of some people in terms of you know uh, initiatives like that. But it's also magnified existing conditions um, and just made those go a lot faster. So if you were hovering on the edge of a mental health problem before, yeah. this you know, this pressure cooker that we've all been through will have made yeah. it come on much faster. And that's why it's feeding through now into yeah. formalized services. You know, I was talking to yeah. frontline um, colleagues in Coventry last week and they were saying half the pediatric beds general pediatric beds in their local hospital are full of young people with mental health problems goodness me and that's you know we, we've had that before when i was working in derby we didn't never got to half but we would you know there is a, an established procedure if, if young people self-harm or overdose they have to be admitted and they have to get a mental health yeah. assessment but the numbers yeah. have never been this high um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's tough times at the moment. Looking at uh, an aspect of what you've just been talking about there, uh, I think one of the things that's been highlighted for many adults, particularly because of enforced isolation or paranoia about, you know, going outside or anything, I mean, look at the proliferation of online delivery services now. You know, we gosh, Amazon's profits have leapt enormously. And now there's people who deliver anything to you in the space of five minutes, you know, uh, uh, ingredients for your dinner or, you know, booze for the weekend, whatever it is. It's just the number of delivery services is extraordinary, which has alleviated some of the problems for people who got worried about literally going to the corner shop you know or standing in a queue and you're standing in a queue and you're wearing your mask but the person in front isn't wearing a mask and all that kind of stuff that we've all been through but i think for a lot of people that that has um accentuated what is obviously one of the most dangerous problems really which is loneliness uh you know it's 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 a pervasive problem and it can lead to severe you know mental health issues obviously there's one thing feeling oh i'm feeling a bit lonely today but if you've got the option of popping out tomorrow you'll feel fine about popping out tomorrow that's not a problem it's when it becomes a persistent thing and you become uh locked within your own walls to a certain extent and of course, this also applies to our young people who were used to, you know, playing with their mates in the park or in the playground at school or whatever, and suddenly have found themselves, as you say, trapped, you know, and I think that's not too strong a word, trapped in the, in the house, uh, even if they've got good parents, caring parents, they, you know, young people, uh, they have this rebellious streak, and they want to get out and play with their own age group be with their own you know their own kind and of course as you know sadly is the case you know these reports of the level of domestic abuse that has gone through the roof and the harm of children you know the the revelation that there are many ab abusive situations out there has been a real shock 
So I think, you know, th since this is your kind of specialization, Lawrence, tell us something about how how does the system cope with that? Because you've got, you know, a, an older generation suffering from loneliness, but also kids who are feeling isolated and alone. How is a nation, how is a, as, a, as a service, do you cope with, you know, that two-pronged attack, as it were? Yeah, I think it's, it's important to see individual needs. So, you know, like you said, some, some children, young people, brought up in really nice houses and you know they've got the space and stuff others cramped mm. in really tiny flats on the 15th floor you know their yeah. experience is going to be very very different and it's the same with older adults as well or individual mm. adults you know we've got uh, you know, lucky enough to have someone who comes and helps with our garden on saturday mornings because i'm rubbish at gardening so you know his experience <laughs> is he's lived with his brother in a tiny flat and apart from coming to see us on saturdays he just went out to the shops at six right. o'clock in the morning to avoid other people you know so mm. I, I think it's it's quite hard for most of us to imagine or to fully understand other people's experience because we kind of get yeah. used to you know we we all have to set you know friends who are a bit similar to us um, mm. and we kind of end up thinking everyone's a bit like that but actually mm. you know the experience of, of different people across the the country is going to be very very different how the services react is again going to be very different we we have service provision that's quite siloed in its approach really so the people dealing with young people are very different to the people dealing with the older people um, they mm. may all work for social services or the health service but you know services are carved up differently but they're all under pressure at the moment mm. um, and some of the people are you know it's natural really some people are good at telling you when they need help mm. and some people are very bad at telling you when they need help and maybe the older mm. generation is is one of those that don't like to trouble the doctors or yeah uh, don't like to make a fuss or you know yeah. feel like other people's concerns and their worries are are more important than theirs so you know actually getting people to access services in the first place and you know we're mm. still probably completely unaware of exactly how big the problem is um, at this stage where we're kind of coming out the far end but in other ways we're not uh, yeah. maybe the physical element of this is is getting to the point where it's being suppressed the vaccines are starting to work for most of us but not everyone's been vaccinated yet again yeah. with children i haven't made a decision yeah. when to vaccinate them or if to vaccinate yeah. them, even though they've yeah. been proven to be safe for at least sort of 12 plus. Um, yeah. So there are still going to be concerns and it will take a long while to to sort of work through the system. I think you know, health service has a massive backlog now because all the resources were thrown into dealing with the COVID uh, yeah, situation. Absolutely. And then it opened up for a little while, as with your experience, you know, we prioritized yeah. some services um that needed to be done quickly but the backlog for the for routine stuff is still very very long and will take a long yeah. time to to work through so you know i remember back when i was on frontline services myself we did things like pandemic planning you know there right. were always plans of, around um but you can never quite anticipate exactly what the pandemic is going to be like you know if you think yeah. you know classic films like contagion you know, <laughs> yeah it's, in many ways, it was quite a good film, but it did assume that, you know, when you caught something, it was pretty much deadly and you dropped dead. This one is yeah. very, very different. 
you know, the emergence of long yeah. COVID, for example, might have a really long impact on the health service and individuals. Yeah. Um, the fact that a lot of people were wandering around asymptomatic and therefore yes. infecting other people without knowing it, yeah. you know, that wasn't, I don't think, particularly anticipated. Um, even though you know SARS and MERS were similar in some ways, but much more contained. Those were similar kinds of respiratory problems, but less contagious. So yeah. you know every pandemic is going to be a bit different. Every planning is going to be a bit different. So you can plan for what if half our staff are off? Uh, yes. We're going to struggle. Yeah, pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, but actually having to do it for 18 months, two years is a bit different yeah. to you know the scenarios yeah. I worked through, for example, yeah. as part of emergency planning, where yeah, we kind of anticipated it would be a short-term thing. So yeah. you know, services are, are having to learn on the hoof at the moment. Um, and we don't yeah. have the acute onset phase where we weren't quite sure what we were dealing with. Um, mm. But we now have the, we're not quite sure how this is going to pan out in terms of how long is the recovery phase? Do we get to a point where we go back mm. to what used to be considered normal? Yeah, absolutely. And, and psychologically, as, you know, as a punter, it's so uh, strange because, you know, here's the government announcing that effectively on the 19th of this month or whenever, it's, hey, we're back to free for all. Do what you like. Uh, and then you've got the scientific advisors saying, oh, hang on a minute, not so sure about that. <laughs> and uh, also as individuals, we're just looking at the news. Well, hang on a minute, this Delta variant has, has appeared out of nowhere and suddenly the number of infections is going through the roof again fortunately it's not yet been reflected in the number of hospital beds being taken up or the number of you know deaths but still it's i think as an individual and most of us are probably feeling pretty strange about this it's like on the one hand we're being told oh it's all fine go and have your summer holidays and whatever and on the other hand we're you know I, I read the guardian they have a little graph every day and there's that graph sort of creeping up and up and up and up again and it's almost like is this over or isn't it? And so psychologically, we're back to that anxiety and uncertainty that we were experiencing, you know, a couple of years ago, where suddenly the, the numbers seem to be going up again. Yeah, I think that's right. It Certainly, I've thought the last few days, it does feel like the beginning again, where you're not quite certain what to believe. Yeah. I mean, looking at the numbers, I'm not an epidemiologist by any stretch of the imagination, but they are starting to go up. The number of deaths yeah. per Day, even though we've got vaccines is is higher than it was this time last year yeah. during the summer which is traditionally a quieter period yeah um, so i think you know that that does feed into people's anxieties you know and does mm. feed into that you know i'm not quite sure what to believe here uh, yeah you know i come from a health background so i much prefer to to try and understand what the the epidemiologists are saying and, and what my colleagues yeah. on the front line are saying and going it's still pretty tough out there but the yeah. difficulty is you can't see it can you it's not like absolutely you know it's not like the the wartime scenario where you could see bombs flying absolutely yeah this one is you know and i think that feeds into to the the conspiracy theorists uh, you yeah know, that, that yeah, because you can't see it, it's hard to fully understand it. And yeah. I, I guess now I mentioned my brother, you know, other people, lots of us know someone who suffered from this. And, yes, and many yeah. of us know someone who's died, which is different from the beginning. Yeah. Um, but on the face of it, if you go out to the shops, it looks pretty normal. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's weird. I, and I think this is, you know, this ties in neatly with, you know, that um, that kind of list of stuff that I mentioned earlier, that there's t certainly the situation now. We're back to the need to feel safe. Can I feel safe? Are these, what's happening out there? And secondly, the need for things to make sense, which is like, well, hang on a minute. I thought we dealt with this. I thought we've, you know, we've all, all got the vaccines. Surely everything should be back to normal now. This isn't making any sense. And of course, then that affects again. Well, does this mean that we're going to have to start isolating again, distancing ourselves? So that, again, that need to be close to other people, potentially being undermined creating anxiety where that's going to happen and the need for comfort well i'm not sure how comfortable i've comforted i feel by what's coming out from the official statistics so those four factors again sort of coming back into play like they were at the beginning of the, of the pandemic which is a yeah, you know, un unsettling, I think it would be fair to say. There's a, a theory which is well known in, in sort of health circles called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It's yeah. been critiqued, so it's not perfect, but it does have this sort of triangle of basic needs at the bottom of you know, food, shelter, yeah. comfort, and it sort of works its way up through through things. And it, it does feel like we're getting again to the point where things that we used to take for granted yes. are not able to to rely on anymore so you know that yeah. that pushes you down the down the triangle of of what's uh, what's important and and as soon as you start undermining the bits at the bottom the things that you take yeah. for granted then that leads to all sorts of difficulties in terms of anxiety and like you say not knowing quite sure who to who to trust on this um yeah and then you start getting all those difficult things where you start looking at people in the supermarket and going why are you not wearing a mask and those yeah. divisions come up or yes. you know that, those sort of culture war things that that people talk about um start to become mm. more difficult because people sort of retrench and, and seek to protect themselves. So, yeah. you know, that, that can get very difficult. I'm sure that's part of what's been going on as well. And yeah. learning to trust each other um, is yes. going to be a hard thing over the next few months and years. Yeah. Yeah. And undermining, undermining faith in the authorities when there are, you know, it just recently the, uh, it's been in the news, you know, uh, kind of um, aspects of hypocrisy being blatantly visible, for example, where many tens of thousands of football supporters are allowed to get together uh, in a stadium or then to go almost unchallenged, uh, wrecking the streets of London. Uh, whereas people gather, trying to gather together for peaceful protests about something are hauled away by the police. Uh, I think this is something that's going to be uh, getting column inches for quite a long time to come. Um, but that's kind of straying outside our remit here. As you say, you know, this, this is one of those areas where uh, mental health and psychology and politics, they're kind of interlinked in interesting ways, actually, aren't they? Yeah, um, even service delivery is is political in many ways. You know, I've, yeah. since I've been at the university, I've taught a lot of lot of international students and you know right again we take for granted our socialized method of healthcare delivery in this country but yeah it's not like that in most of the world you know how you deliver healthcare is a political issue yeah i think the, the, the thing about um people letting off steam a bit at the end uh that that is an issue as well that is about people having been mm -hmm. confined and you know the mm -hmm. euphoria about the, the football team doing really well um 
people have been very constrained and you know now they're they're hoping that it's over and they're mm. hoping they can get back to to normal as soon as they can and their their idea of normal may not be as socially acceptable as you or I might think, but yeah. you know, it is a it is about a natural desire to let off steam, um, mm. and that's hard mm. to resent people too much, except that obviously impacts on other people. So, yeah, absolutely, it does bring out the worst in some. It does. Uh, let's move on for a bit because I think um, uh, we've got a little bit of time left, and I, one of the things I wanted to ask is because obviously, if people realise, and this, you know, this is step one, realise you've got a problem, right? Uh, the same as if, oh, I think I've cho accidentally chopped my leg off. You'd realise you've got a problem at some point. You know, if, if those of us who've been facing, uh, you know, what I fully acknowledge, mental health issues. Uh, depression, anxiety, that kind of thing over the years. Um, one of the things certainly during COVID that became, you know, uh, really obvious to me when I approached my GP and said, mm, I think I'm suffering from depression. You know, this diagnosis of cancer has taken me by surprise and, um, you know, don't know how well I'm coping and blah, 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 blah. What can you do for me? Well, option one was, well, I'll give you some tablets, <laughs> right? Uh, now that's, Obviously, not all GPs. That was my GP, um, or shall I say, ex-GP. Um, I wasn't satisfied with that as an answer, and I felt like surely there must be some other kind of option rather than just sticking me on more tablets, having because I was already on tablets for, for other stuff. And uh, so I was referred at the time to an organisation called BetterHelp in our local area, and had to wait some time before I then had a conversation with a wonderful guy. I have to say um we had a long chat and he said oh yes what you clearly need is actually long-term ongoing talk therapy of one kind or another unfortunately because of covid we can't offer that to you uh well, the most i could offer you would be a series of six consultations six half hour consultations and it's quite clear to me you need a great deal more than that so i'm just going to have to refer you back to your gp so it's like what <laughs> catch 22 and in the end, I've ended up going and getting private counselling, private therapy sessions, which aren't cheap. They are effective, but, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling much better now. Thanks, everyone. But it's that that was kind of my experience. And so I imagine I, I've not been alone in that situation either. And so uh, th th one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Lawrence, is, in any case, where, where, what are the kind of dividing lines, as you see, however rough a guide this is, between when someone has a serious condition that you would feel they need hospitalizing for in some way, taken to an institution, which I think used to go by the name of sectioning, something of that kind, uh, compared to someone who's got a, you know, it's 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 not a negligible problem, but it can be dealt with, and it can be dealt with by the NHS in some way, some some service offering, and other things where do you know what that's the kind of thing where you're probably better off going to you know finding a private counsellor therapist in your local area. Okay, so yeah, I guess the the main issue you've highlighted the need for people to identify for themselves that there is an issue, um, mm. and that's harder for men than for women, I think, because of the way we're brought up mm. and you know not talking about stuff and being big and strong and all that stuff. I think in terms of service provision, it's when is a problem a problem, 
if you've got low level yeah. anxiety and you can cope with it and you can think, well, it's a bit silly, but I don't feel great, but I, I can cope, then, you know, it's not a problem in some ways. And you can you know, use your own resources. When it starts to impact on your life, then it starts mm. to become a problem. If you can't go to school or you can't go to work, then obviously it has become you know, a serious issue. Um, and when you start experiencing more severe symptoms, then you know, people hallucinate and all sorts of things. And you know, obviously mm. that's getting very serious. You mentioned sectioning. I think that's you know that still 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 happens. You know, sectioning is about people being detained under a section of the Mental Health Act. That right. generally only happens when people have lost all insight into what's going on to them. Um, yeah. So you know their impact that their impact is not just on them but on other people as well, or their condition mm. is life threatening. Um, mm. So generally, we try and treat people uh, before it gets to that point. And we, you know, most patients in mental health hospitals, for example, are voluntary patients. They're they're not on right. sections, um, but they have enough insight to go. I have a problem. I need and I need help. I think where you get the help from is difficult. And again, that that goes back to the politics in some ways. You mm. know, mental health gets uh, is it twelve percent of the NHS budget currently. Um, and you can argue that it needs more than that. Children's mm. mental health gets a small fraction of that. We get less than 1% of the NHS budget. Um, wow. you know, and you could argue again that that's, you could be more preventative if you do those things. But, you know, it's, it's difficult because services are set up the way you are. IAPT services that I referred to tend to be called different things in different places. So I suspect that... Mm. From your description, your local better help is an IAPT service, and they are often set up with this uh, CBT pattern of six sessions and then review. Um, and that's a financial constraint. You know, that's how services are set up. It's a better option than, than nothing. It's probably better than just going on the tablets. Best yeah. medical advice is take the tablets if that helps you, but also get talking help as well. You know, the two yeah. often work together. You know, sometimes yeah. you're so poorly that you can't do the talking stuff. The meds will get you to a point where you can do the talking right. stuff. And yes, obviously, there are different sorts of talking therapies. The, the IAPT services tend to use something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is well-researched yeah. and works really well for some things. Yeah. Um, but for other things, you do need longer-term intervention. And that's by and large, is not available on the NHS. So if you're able and in a position to pay for it, that's great. Lots of people aren't, obviously, mm. um, or you know, they find it really difficult or the, the kind of therapies that are around don't suit them. You know, for lots of kids, mm. for example, um, talking therapies are not the greatest thing because yeah. they haven't learned how to articulate how they're feeling very well in a way yeah. that adults generally are, are better at. Um, yeah. So, you know, different approaches for working with kids are needed, art therapies, creative therapies, drama therapies, yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, we, we've touched on politics throughout this because politics is part of healthcare. Yeah. I think there is a responsibility and a difficulty for people to overcome the stigma um, yeah. and and seek, like yourself, to recognize what, what the problems have been and been 
I don't like using the word brave because it's not about being brave. It's about mm. you know finding a way of talking about it and understanding that that's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we we're still living. It's a lot better now, um, but we still live in a an, air, an age where mental health difficulties are stigmatized. Um, yeah, people don't understand them very well, so they're frightened of them. Um, yeah. And people even use the language wrong. So I've I've been careful yeah. to use mental health issues or mental health difficulties. People mm. will you know, throw away phrases like "Oh, he's got mental health," and he. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the whole phrase about yeah. mental health becomes stigmatizing, and you know, we yeah, yeah. go around in cycles with that one. Um, yeah, so, it becomes an oxymoron because we, you know, mental health is you know the overall picture, and we all want good mental health uh, yeah. as opposed to bad mental health, you know, or, or, or impaired mental health. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think that um, what what I would say from my own perspective, as someone who acknowledges that in over the last couple of years I've suffered from mental health issues, uh, is that uh until you've lived through it yourself it's really hard to understand let alone empathize with someone someone else who says they've got mental health issues it's 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 a because most of the time we tick along nicely, you know, we cope with stuff, we're reasonably resilient to knocks and scrapes along the way, you know, or something bad happens, oh, you know, give it a rub, boy, you'll be fine. And what I realised that I, because of my upbringing, which was that kind of, oh, don't make a fuss, you know, duh, duh, you know, boys don't cry, give it a rub, you'll be fine, it'll be fine, don't talk about it. Uh, Man, it stores up a nasty boiling brew that then can then bubble to the surface unexpectedly decades later in life. And that's what happened to me, uh, kind of related to my cancer treatment. Not the cancer itself, interestingly, but to some of the medication I've been given to help uh, suppress nasty things going on inside me. Uh, totally unexpected, totally unexpected. And uh, that... Uh, that's why I started this podcast because it gave me an insight into my goodness me, this is really important life changing stuff. One of the things I wanted to uh, kind of mention when we're talking about different kinds of therapies, there, uh, something that I turn to because of the kind of person I am, my kind of background, I read a lot. So one of the first things I turned to actually was I just went straight onto Amazon and kind of started downloading every self-help Kindle, every buying every paperback on this, that and the other that I could possibly find and just kind of, to a large extent, read my way out of trouble, you know, with help from caring friends who know stuff, you know, about this kind of subject matter. And I think that uh, it's fair to say uh, I would recommend that people start reading this stuff before they hit a major crisis <laughs> rather than afterwards. But there are some, you know, I, for a long time, I think I poo pooed the, the self-help section in the book, in the bookshop, you know, as all oh, a load of rubbish, self-appointed gurus and that kind of stuff. Well, there are some of people like that, but actually amongst that are some absolutely incredible books, some of which I'm going to be talking about on this show in the, in the series of programs and kind of, promoting on the on the website uh because you mentioned their um cognitive behavioral therapy 
And one of the first books I read actually some time ago was a book about cognitive behavioral therapy, which became of interest to me because of the work I've done supporting a charity called Combat Stress. Uh, you know, a veterans charity where they deal with PTSD and stuff. And for certain aspects of that, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy can be really good. Uh, and for many kind of, if you like, everyday mental health issues, stuff like cognitive behavioral therapy, as you mentioned, can be really surprisingly good. So uh, I think, you know, there's, uh, it's worth saying that uh, there is a kind of uh, the uh, there is the option of a self provision, isn't there, of mental health care up to a point, you know, beyond which you need to talk to someone. You know that that's kind of my advice. Yeah, yeah, I think that works for lots of people. If you if you're the sort of person who loves books, then that's great. Um, for lots of people, they need to find other things, and the talking stuff uh, is important for that. But not just talking to a professional, talking to other people. Um, mm. and, and being able to talk openly i think you know men in particular struggle with that and you know the the yeah. shared emotional experience of sports for example is one yeah. way that men let out their emotions in a socially acceptable way but talking about how you feel a bit low or a bit fed up is not so socially acceptable so mm. yeah we need to, to sort of work our way through that and you've got to find the thing that works for you i think you know i've mm. i've worked with a lot of people um for example who've looked at uh, different things that would help i worked um since we're on the sort of veterans thing i worked a couple of years ago with um a woman who was looking at horticultural therapy specifically oh, wow. for veterans uh defense gardens wow. project um mm. And that's great. I've I've worked with other people. You know, I know I've got a friend who, who's worked with sort of animal therapies and you know, horses yeah. and dogs and how they can be great. But those are great yeah. for certain people. If you don't like dogs, dog therapy is not for you. Yeah. If you're not yeah. very fond of horses, don't go on an equine therapy course. <laughs> if you can't stand being out in the garden and horticultural therapy is not going to work for you all of these things you've got to find the right thing for each person yeah, yeah. and i think yeah. you know you're right it is difficult for the for the general population to fully understand how bad some of this stuff can be um, we're yeah. all a bit like that i when i was younger i used to think people with allergies and and stuff like that were a bit wussy and then in my mid 40s i suddenly started getting hay fever it's like whoa this actually is really serious <laughs> Yeah, um, and it's the same thing, you know. Everyone gets a bit of mild anxiety, but getting yeah. an acute panic attack, getting so severe onset of anxiety is very different. And yeah. if you've never fully experienced it, then it's hard to see how crippling it can be for people. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, talking about different therapies, I, I also uh, in a subject matter that I know you and I are both interested in. There's Professor Tony Pollard who runs the the Waterloo project, mm -hmm. digging up the battlefield of Waterloo with veterans. So archaeology as a form of therapy as well. I think uh, that there are many things. I mentioned a word that will come up. I know time and time again in these in these uh, podcasts, flow. Uh, it, it's stuff that gets you into a flow state where your focus uh, and attention is entirely kind of dedicated to something. It kind of blots out everything else. And it's wonderful. You know, I think if, if you're lucky like me, I work in a creative career. It's one of the things that keeps me wanting to be in a creative career. But it can be very, very therapeutic as well. Just 
takes you away from everything else. And that for someone else, it might be gardening. For someone else, it might be, you know, kicking a football against the wall. But uh, it kind of comes down to the same sort of thing, doesn't it? Um, Lawrence, I think we've kind of started to run out of time here. So uh, is there anything else you wanted to kind of say to the nation, as it were, about uh, (laughs) how grandiose of me to imagine that the nation is listening to this? Maybe one day. But is there anything else you'd like to add as a kind of a takeaway for people about, um, you know, coping with what is now, please touch wood here the kind of aftermath of the pandemic as as we go forward over the coming you know months just i think to not assume it's going to return to normal straight away for any of us Mm. Uh, Mm. life will not be normal it may never be as we knew it before and that's okay in some ways as long as we recognize that we're in new times now maybe for individuals, you know, you mentioned the, the thing about suppressing your feelings and, and trying to pretend they weren't there. And, you know, that, that's a way of coping that people have. It's not necessarily the best way of coping. So recognizing your feelings, recognizing when you need to seek a bit of help and that it's okay to seek help is really important. So if there's a takeaway, I would leave you with that. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've made episode one a memorable one for all the right reasons. Thank Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Inside Your Head. Don't forget to stay tuned for Relaxation on the Beach with Henry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. This is Henry, and I thought it would be nice to add something to the end of each show to send you away feeling soothed and calm and better able to face the rest of the day or perhaps even to get a good night's sleep. So why not come and join me for some relaxation on the beach? Okay, the idea of this is really simple. Uh, Some of you may never have done any kind of meditation before. And you might think it's hocus-pocus and woo-woo stuff. And I'll admit, for a very long time, so did I. I thought it was some strange, mysterious thing that required you to spend time in a Tibetan monastery or halfway up Mount Everest. Or go and sit out in the middle of a forest somewhere. The fact is, it's not like that at all, though you are, of course, welcome to spend time in a Tibetan monastery or in the middle of a forest, if that's what you'd like to do. There may be some of you listening who've actually done some meditation previously. Maybe you're still doing meditation and you just like the idea of maybe having a try with someone else guiding the meditation compared to your normal practice. Or maybe you've not done any for quite some time and you'd like the idea of a bit of a refresher course. 
Well, you're certainly welcome here. And those of you who know what you're doing with meditation will have to forgive me for any mistakes I make. But this first meditation, I'm going to aim primarily at those of you who've never done any meditation before to demystify the process. It's really very, very simple. And a lot of the benefits of meditation are to do with just bringing everything to the present moment so that you're not worried about anything that's happened in the past and you're not anxious about anything that might happen in the future. We just sit or stand or lie in the absolute here and now. And one of the ways we do that is by focusing on the breath, which is what we're going to talk about today. All right. So first things first, where are you? Find yourself a space with a bit of privacy that, if you're able, is relatively quiet. If you're in your own home, that's obviously ideal, or maybe you're in your office. It's not actually essential to be somewhere that's quiet and silent. One of the benefits of meditation is actually to help you not get distracted by other stuff that's going on around you. But trying to make it easy for the first time if you're able to find somewhere that's relatively quiet, secluded, private, that's great. But precisely where it is, that's up to you. The second thing is, don't think that you have to sit cross-legged on a fancy cushion somewhere, assuming some sort of complicated yogury type position. That is not necessary. The main thing is to be completely comfortable. So, maybe you're in bed. That's fine. Stay lying down. If you want to prevent yourself from going to sleep, maybe raise your knees up. But lying down is fine. If you've got problems with your back or legs or something, standing up is also fine. Okay? So, so long as you can stand somewhere comfortable and... You're not in any danger of falling over. That's fine. Classically, meditation is done sitting down. And the most important thing, again, is make sure you're in a chair that you find comfortable. Now, that might be a dining chair at home. It might be an office chair. It might be your favourite armchair. It might be a sofa. Doesn't matter. So long as you're comfortable. With some meditations, it's going to be quite good to be able to sit relatively upright. But for this first one, we're not going to bother about that. The main thing is just be comfortable, okay? Next, eyes open or eyes closed? I tend to meditate with my eyes closed. Admittedly, I sometimes fall asleep. <laughs> And then when I'm listening to a meditation app, I wake up later, you know, I drool down my chin. Oh dear, fell asleep, rewind, start again. But that's up to you. If you want to meditate with your eyes closed, that's kind of classic. It prevents any distraction from stuff outside your eyelids. You can meditate with your eyes open. I'd recommend kind of 
half focusing on your surroundings. So have your eyes kind of half closed so your vision's a bit fuzzy. You're not going to be distracted or focus over much on any particular thing. If your eyes are open, what are you going to look at? Well, it could be a blank wall. It could be a painting hang on a wall or a photograph. Or if you've got a view out of a window over something that's nice to look at, look out the window. It really doesn't matter. Okay? So, are you comfortable? Have you made your decision about sitting, lying or standing? Eyes closed or eyes open? Yeah? Right. All you need to do right now is just take one big breath in. And then let it out slowly. Okay. And as you exhale, feel yourself relax. Feel yourself sink into your chair or on the bed. And the next choice we're going to make is what do we focus on when we are meditating? And there's a guy called Jeff Warren, who's one of the people who's does meditations on the Calm app, and he calls this your home base. And the home base that most people choose is your breath, because your breath is always there. If it's not, you're in trouble, right? But the breath is with you wherever you go, no special equipment required. So focusing on the breath is what we'll probably choose today as your home base. Some people might prefer to focus on the sensation of your lungs filling and emptying, or your diaphragm, even your heartbeat, if you've got a prominent heartbeat, your pulse, or the sensation of where your body makes contact with the bed or the chair, or your feet make contact with the floor, just something to focus on. But for today, we're going to go for the breath, and most specifically, where you breathe in and out through your nostrils, okay? With the breath that tends to be cooler as it comes in and then warmer as it passes out, all right? So, let's try that to start with. With your eyes closed or half open, whatever you chose, we're just going to take a couple of simple breaths in, focusing on the breath as it comes in and then as it goes out all right so take a big breath in and out and in and out okay so by now you must be nice and relaxed and now we're going to we're going to do some more interesting things so we're going to slow the breathing down we're going to take a big breath in to the count of four, pause at the top, and then let it out for six. So let's try this together. So, ready? In, two, three, four, and pause, two, and out, two, three, four, five, six, and in, two, three, four, pause, two and out two three four five six and in 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 two three four five
three, four, pause, two, and out, two, three, four, five, six, and in, two, three, four, pause, two, and out, two, three, four, five, six. Now do a couple of those on your own. Okay, did you manage that? Okay, so let your breathing return to normal now. Okay. Now, what we're going to do is extend that out breath even further with a longer pause at the top. So we're going to breathe in for four, hold for four, and breathe out for eight. Okay. Yes, we can manage this, can't we? Ready? And in, two, three, four. And pause, two, three, four. And out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And in, two, three, four. Pause, two, three, four. And out, two, Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and in two, three, four, and pause two, three, four, and out two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and in two, three, four, and pause two, three, four, and out two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And again, do a couple more of those on your own. Okay, you managed that? Excellent. So now let your breath return to normal. Just breathing very easily in and out. And what you might now notice is even when you're breathing normally, there's a slight pause between when the in-breath ends and the out-breath begins. And you also notice that even your normal breathing now is slower and calmer and perhaps deeper than it was before we started. The magic of meditation. And finally, you may have noticed that with all that concentration on your breathing, you haven't had a chance to think about anything else. 
So even doing a little meditation as simple as this one releases you from all those pressures you face every day, all your worries about things that happened in the past, all your anxiety about what might happen in the future. Just simply by controlling your breathing and focusing on the breath, you get your little magic space all to yourself, even if it's just for a few minutes. And it's really surprising that if you do this thing every day, even several times a day, it can really start to make a difference to how you feel about the world and your life. It's had an extraordinary effect on me and some people I know. None of it's woo-woo, none of it's hocus-pocus. It's just sitting or lying still in a peaceful place, closing your eyes and breathing and focusing on the breath. Okay. I hope you've enjoyed this very first inside your head relaxation on the beach session so now what i'd like you to do is slowly open your eyes have a bit of a stretch maybe even a yawn and now you can go back to your day i'll see you next time in the meantime be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021.